Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. What an extraordinary time in the life of our nation, you know? You had Rand Paul coming out and saying, oh, you know, those documents, they were planted there by the FBI. And then you got the FBI picture coming out. And what does Trump say? Well, I'm not a slob. I didn't spread those all over the floor. <laughs> I keep them in boxes. And, and then his lawyer says, oh, yeah, I've been in his office. He brings guests in there. Like, it's like, you know, give the prosecutors everything they need, right? It's, it's just absolutely amazing. Anyhow, I want to tell you the real story of Mikhail Gorbachev. There's a chapter about it in my new book, The Hidden History of Neoliberalism, that'll be out in a week or so. Gorbachev just passed away. It's an amazing story. What he tried, he literally was trying to turn Russia into Sweden. He wanted to make it a progressive, an extraordinarily progressive new nation, a new, you know, contributor to the world. And who sold him out? George H.W. Bush. And uh, basically engineered a whole program to say, no, you can't get IMF loans unless you adopt neoliberalism, which they did. And that brought us Putin and everything else. We'll tell you about that. And also, narcissistic collapse is when somebody who is suffering from a severe case of narcissistic personality disorder, an actual identifiable DSM-4R, whatever it is these days, uh, maybe it's the five now, mental disorder, that when somebody with that is confronted with this uh, narcissistic fantasy world that they've created around themselves, when that fantasy world begins to collapse, what happens? What kind of behavior can we expect from Donald Trump as his world falls apart? Which very much is happening. I, you, know, I, I, you know, I have been saying for over a year now, there's not a chance Donald Trump is ever going to be president of the United States again. The big, the big risk, frankly, is not Trump. The big risk is DeSantis or Josh Hawley or, or you know, one of these other guys who are also fascists, who also don't, or, you know, they, uh, well, Rand Paul would never rise to that level, but that, that, you know, that kind of person who don't believe in democracy, who do want to realign the United States with Russia or align the United States with Russia and break our alliance with NATO and, and diminish our relationship with the European Union. And, you know, uh, hook up with dictators and autocrats around the world. That, I think, is the real risk. But, you know, it's a, it's a fascinating show. In fact, I said, uh, I was, Louise and I were talking about this a couple days ago, that, that I think that to a large extent what we're seeing right now is a, how to say it, a freak show? That's pretty derogatory. But, but you know, Do Donald Trump is this generation's version of O.J. Simpson. Remember when the whole nation for like weeks, the, the news was all O.J. all the time, and it's like, oh, you know, we were completely obsessed with it. 9-11 was another one of those things, you know, where for weeks and weeks we were completely obsessed with it. Um, although that one isn't personality-driven outside of bin Laden, but, but the O.J. Simpson one was largely personality-driven. You know, you've got a high-profile person who is in trouble, and people are forming up opinions on both sides, and hey, it's just made for television. But in the meantime, there's really good stuff going on. And Joe Biden is doing some really good stuff, and Congress is doing some really good stuff, and we're just not talking about that enough. My op-ed today over at HartmanReport.com 
is titled, When Will Americans Again Believe in America? And after I share this with you, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll get into, I'll, I'll take your phone calls here on anything, uh, anything goes summer. But when will Americans again believe in America? And, you know, the, the headline doesn't really disclose what the article's about. Um, but what the article's about is how Republican philosophy of basically that the only thing government should do is give tax cuts to billionaires and fund the military, that that philosophy is destroying this country. That's kind of the bad news. And the good news is that the antithesis of that, the democratic perspective, is starting to rebuild this country. Now, you know, we've got a lot of challenges. There's still a whole bunch of neoliberals in the Democratic Party and all that, you know, kind of stuff and, you know, quack, quack, quack. But, but my, my article points out that philosophy matters. And philosophy turned into law matters a lot, particularly in this brave new world of climate change. We're, we're, you know, Jackson, Mississippi is coming to your town soon, whether it's floods or fires. The climate is different now. Our, we are living in a different atmosphere than the atmosphere that humans have been living in for the last couple hundred thousand years, or at least, uh, actually more accurately, the last five to 10,000 years since the agricultural revolution, since the end of the last ice age. We're living in a very different climate. And this is just the very leading edge of it. And we need to respond to this you know, in a serious and full-throated way, this is, if there ever was a time to have government, you know, this idea of we the people, as it says in the preamble of the Constitution, who do things collectively to establish justice and ensure domestic tranquility and provide for the general welfare, if there was ever a time we needed that, it's when we're beset by crises. And climate change is a huge one. But what have Republicans been doing? The exact opposite. Here we have nine of the 10 poorest states in the nation are red states, which should be no surprise. Republicans philosophically have been opposed to unions and the minimum wage since the 1930s. They, they will tell you. They, own, they believe people will only pull themselves up by their bootstraps when they're confronted with the alternative of terrible grinding poverty. The exception to this, of course, is the children of rich people who must be allowed to inherit every last penny without any horrible death tax. Right? I mean, their logic is so self-serving and so bizarre. You would think that Americans would just see through this, but you still have Republicans going, oh, don't tax is a terrible thing. So Texas privatized their electric grid, and what happened? Hundreds of people died in a blackout, and, and Texans were getting $10,000 electric bills. In 12 Republican-controlled states, people don't have access to Medicaid. You know, the Republican philosophy for low-wage low wage workers, screw you, basically, is their philosophy. Red states have the lowest levels of high school and college graduation, generally, because, of course, Republicans don't think it's the job of government to educate people. In fact, red states, almost across the board, have the highest rates in the nation of, now get this list, listen carefully, spousal abuse, obesity, smoking, teen pregnancy, socially trans sexually transmitted diseases, abortion, bankruptcies and poverty, homicide and suicide, infant mortality, maternal mortality, forcible rape, robbery and aggravated assault, dropouts from high school, divorce, contaminated air and water, opiate addiction and deaths, unskilled workers, parasitic infections, income and wealth inequality, COVID deaths and unvaccinated people, federal subsidies to states, also known as red state welfare, people on welfare, child poverty, homelessness, spousal murder, unemployment, deaths from auto accidents, and people living on disability. And if you go to the article over at HartmanReport.com, you know, today, uh, it's at the very top, uh, you'll find every single one of those things that I just mentioned, there's a hot link to an article documenting my claim. Every single one of them. And it all comes back to philosophy. And it's not like it's a secret. Ronald Reagan told us this is what the, this was the new Republican you know, philosophy that he was going to embrace when he was sworn into office on January 20th, 1981, when he said, and I quote, in this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. From time to time, we've been tempted to believe that society has become too complex to be managed by self-rule. The government by an elite group is superior to government by, for, and of the people. 
Well, if no one among us is capable of governing himself, then who among us has the capacity to govern someone else? Question mark. End of quote. In other words, hey, if we can't take care of ourselves, how could we possibly run a government? So let's just do away with the government. This has been the Republican philosophy for 40 years. It's called neoliberalism. And sadly, it was bought into by Bill Clinton and to, the, to a smaller extent by Barack Obama, you know, with the end of welfare as we know it and the end of big, the era of big government. Well, that experiment, that 40-year neoliberal experiment, has not only failed, but it is now ending. And who's ending it? The Democrats. Joe Biden and the Democratic Party have kind of woken up from this 40-year sleep and looked back and said, you know, Franklin Roosevelt was right and Ronald Reagan was wrong. And we got to stop this following Ronald Reagan BS and just, you know, and once again reclaim government as a public good, as a good thing, as an important thing. Thankfully, the Democratic Party has figured this out. But the bottom line is now we've got climate change coming after us. You know, before, before the last couple of years, and it's just gotten so obvious in the last two years, you know, we had a 116 degree summer last year here in Portland. It's going to be 124 degrees in California today. Um, it is, it is, you've got, you know, Jackson, Mississippi underwater because of an epic flood in Kentucky two weeks ago. Um, it, it, it's just happening all over the country. Wildfires are going to be the new norm, and not just in the West. This is the, this drying out, the great drying out is happening across the Rocky Mountain states and the Midwest and fire, fire, fires and things like this. So what we're seeing now as a consequence of our claim, changing climate is that we can't, we can't afford this Republican philosophy anymore. Prior to the era of climate change, this whole Republican philosophy was something that, you know, we could argue about, we could fight over, you know, it screwed the students, you know, we've got a student debt crisis, you know, a lot of people don't have, you know, in 12 Republican-controlled states, people don't have access to Medicaid, they don't have health insurance, there's, you know, kids are not getting decent educations, we don't teach civics anymore, quack, 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 right? Obviously, a, a lot of problems from the Republican philosophy. And prior to climate change, we could, like, bear that, we could endure it. But now we really have to pull together. Now we really need government. And we can't afford any longer a philosophy that says that government is a fundamental evil. We have to embrace government as a fundamental good and make it work that way. Republicans always try to sabotage government whenever they get control of it. You know, like Trump laying off 20% of the IRS and 20% of the Social Security Administration so that those agencies wouldn't work well. We can't afford to do that anymore. So anyhow, that's my rant. It's over at HartmanReport.com. Curtis in Victoria or Austin, Texas, which is it, Curtis? Curtis, I'm in uh, actually in Taylor, Texas. Taylor, Texas. Okay, I'll fix this. Tyler, T-Y-L-E-R or T-A-Y? T-A-Y-L-O-R. Okay, you got it. Taylor, Texas. What's up, uh, Curtis? Yes, I have a question for you, Tom, and maybe you have an answer or maybe you don't. With all the Republicans that make these these outlandish threats toward Republic, I mean, toward Democrats and, and politicians at hand, you know, if a, if a kid calls a school and or you call a business and tell them you're going to bomb them or you're going to come create physical harm to them, you know, the law enforcement will come to your house and pick you up. Why is it allowed for these Republican politicians like Marjorie Taylor Greene and all these other ones that make these, these asinine threats toward um, uh, politicians that they don't suffer any kind of consequences? Right. Like Lindsey Graham saying that, you know, uh, white people are going to riot if uh, Donald Trump is... is uh, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. I, you know, uh, I mean, there is an easy answer to that, Curtis, and that is that public officials have um, arguably a lot more leeway in the things that they're saying. And, and, there, and there's an actual and real difference between predicting riots and calling a school you know, calling in a bomb threat to a school or something like that. I mean, you know, the, there is a distinction there. Yes. But, but I, you and, know, I get and, your and point. It's a, it's a threat to the public. It's a, it's a threat to the public safety. And, and, yeah, and as she, such, at least should be called out. Yeah, I don't know if you caught it, but Lindsey Graham has walked back his comments. 
Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I was watching Lawrence O'Donnell the other night, and I think he did a wonderful piece on that. Yeah. And uh, I just think that, you know, these guys are just flat-out cowards that, you know, say these things, but, you know, they're – They'll be the first ones to run for cover and look for protection of the of the law enforcement when it all goes down. Oh, I don't recall any of those Republicans running out to meet the protesters on January 6th. Do you? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. <laughs> well, Tom, thanks for taking my call. Thank I you, Curtis. It. Great talking with you. I appreciate the call. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. A quick story I wanted to share with you. This this is in the news. It's a headline over at, I, I caught it over at rawstory.com this morning. Apparently, Melania Trump is quite upset that the FBI went through her uh, her, her drawers, uh, you know, her uh, dressing dressing drawers in at Mar-a-Lago, looking for seek, top secret documents that might have been squirreled away. They found them stashed in like a half a dozen different places in Mar-a-Lago. So this is not surprising. But now she's so upset that she has to she has bought an entire new set of underwear seriously one of her spokespeople said uh, she does she hates people touching her and she certainly doesn't want to put on lingerie that FBI agents have had their hands all over right those filthy FBI agents <laughs> does America need to buy all new underwear after having Donald Trump as president for four years I mean is <laughs> And, and not just underwear. Frankly, we need to buy a new government. Well, not buy. We, we need a new government. Uh, we, we need a, a reboot here in America. All righty. Let's pick up your phone calls. Sean in Stamford, Connecticut. Hey, Sean, thanks for watching us on Free Speech TV. What's on your mind today? Well, today I figured something was with a holiday. I thought I'd tell you a political joke I came across that I think you might enjoy. Go for it. So, okay. So, President Trump, President Obama, and President Bush Jr. all meet God for the first time. And God says to President Bush Jr., what do you believe in? And he says, well, I believe that all Americans are free of unnecessary regulation. And God says, very well, you said my right. He turns to President Obama and says, what do you believe in? And Obama says to God, I believe that all Americans have affordable and accessible health care. God says, very well, you stay on my left. Finally, Trump, tur Trump turns to God, and God says to him, what do you believe in? And Trump turns to God again, and he says, well, I believe you're sitting in my seat. I believe what? I believe you're sitting in my seat. Oh, you're sitting in my seat. <laughs> okay, good one. All right. Thank you, Sean. <laughs> Our joke for You're the welcome. Yeah, I needed that. Thank you very much. Uh, you can't laugh too hard. My back is starting to hurt. <laughs> Anyhow, Mark in Mineola, Texas. Hey, Mark, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom. Love, love, love the show. Thank you. Uh, I just thought I would make people aware they're moving the battleship Texas to Galveston to dry dock. That's like a hundred year old ship, isn't it? 117 years old. It's the wow. first time it's floated since 1988. There are a lot of people gathered along the route to view the ship. Uh-huh. You can, there are a lot of live feed. You can go, just Google, you know, moving Battleship Texas. Is this still a commissioned battleship or is it, has it been oh, like, no, no, no. it's it been a museum been. kind of thing for a long time, hasn't it? Yes, sir. It's, uh, the, 
They're right there at the San Jacinto Monument, which is actually taller than the Washington Monument. Huh. And it it's it's on the battlefield. I don't know how familiar you are with Texas history, but that's where Sam Houston defeated Santa Ana. Oh, interesting. No, I didn't know that. I'm not that familiar with Texas yeah. history. I'm sorry. And Texas gained their independence from Mexico. It's a pretty cool place. But anyway, they're moving the battleship for the first time in years. They're, I'm and assuming that uh, tugs are pulling it rather than it's going under its own power. Yes, sir. Tugs are pulling it. And the live feed is really cool. The Texas finally, I mean, I'm the last Democrat in Texas. I don't remember. <laughs> you and Beto O'Rourke. No, I think actually there's a whole bunch of them popping up. Go Beto, yeah. yeah. Uh, is your but, sense uh, that Beto is going to have a good chance this, this fall? He, he's got a chance. He's got a chance. Uh, I'm keeping my fingers crossed. Good guy. You know, I agree with him just about on all of his issues, gun issues, everything else. I mean. And the governor has not yet uh, removed your name from the voting rolls. You've been checking your voter registration. I don't know. I haven't checked. Oh, well, but, uh, might be a good idea. Not. Might be I a good idea. Not. Yeah. But Texas finally did something right and and uh, ponied up thirty-five million dollars to take it down to Galveston and get it restored. So just thought That's I'd let great. people know it's live feed. It's really cool. Okay, Mark. Thanks a lot for the call. Uh, fascinating stuff. We'll be back we continue our conversation. Um, I want to tell you the real story of Mikhail Gorbachev. There's a, there's a lot of kind of reinvented history going on. I'll share that with you right after the break. Stick around. Mikhail Gorbachev has passed away at the age of 91. And there's a tweet running around about Gorbachev, you know, as you know, what he did with the Soviet Union, all this kind of stuff. He was, you know, quite literally the last leader of the Soviet Union. Thank you. And, uh, you know, this guy uh, uh, tweeted, Gorbachev died. His legacy, Russia's GDP dropped by 40%, real wages halved, poverty ballooned by 2.2 million in 87-88 to 66 million in 93-95. Millions died under the brutal regime of privatization and shock therapy. Half a million women were trafficked into sexual slavery. All that stuff happened. But none of it happened because of Gorbachev. <laughs> and, 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 and this is just what sh so shocking to me. Um, Gorbachev dissolved, essentially, the Soviet Union. And, uh, you know, he, and he did it because he wanted to turn Russia, the new, the new Russia, the post-Soviet Union Russia, into Sweden. And no, I'm not exaggerating. I, this, this is, uh, you know, uh, and not making that up. I mean, this, this is, in fact, there's a chapter about this or part of a chapter about this in my new book, The Hidden History of Neoliberalism, How Reaganism Gutted America. It's on uh, page 63 and 64. And uh, it, it's what happened was that when Gorbachev started dissolving the Soviet Union, there was, there was this huge effort to impose neoliberalism on countries. This was a project that started in the 1950s in the United States. Milton Friedman was its main proponent. It was a project that was embraced by the Republican Party in 1980, and Ronald Reagan imposed neoliberalism on the United States in 1981. Neoliberalism, destroy labor unions, lower wages, cut taxes on rich people, um, embrace free trade so that, so that uh, companies can get their labor in other countries that are cheaper. Um, all, you know, these are the, the dimensions of the, the kind of the core premises of neoliberalism. And we tried it here. It gutted the middle class. They tried it in Chile with Pinochet, where we tried it with Pinochet. The CIA and ITT helped. Um, and it was a disaster. Um, China dodged the bullet in 88 when I was in China. They, they, uh, they decided, no, we're not going to do this, which was an, an amazing thing. And uh, so China said, no, we're not going to do this. And Russia was not going to embrace neoliberalism. Gorbachev literally said he wanted to re reshape Russia along the lines of Sweden. He wanted a, and he, and he thought it was a, a logical transition out of communism. In communism, everybody had health care, everybody had housing, there, you know, there was a complete and comprehensive social safety net. And he's saying, no, let's bring in capitalism. And, and, but let's maintain a strong social safety net. Let's do it like Sweden. And who blew that up in 1991? George Herbert Walker Bush. 
GHW Bush was completely committed to neoliberalism, to, the, to this ideology of free trade and all this other BS that goes with it. And, and he got together with the, uh, the International Monetary Fund in order to make this transition out of the Soviet Union and into an independent state of Russia. They needed loans. They needed international loans. And George Herbert Walker Bush and the IMF basically went to Gorbachev and then later to Yeltsin. Actually, most of this happened under Yeltsin. It didn't even happen under Gorbachev. Um, Gorbachev was out of there when this happened. This was during the, the reign of Yeltsin. And I was in Russia during that time. I was, I was working in Kaliningrad occasionally and uh, with the International Relief Project that I, that I'm familiar, that I work with. And th at that time, they, they said, if you want these loans, you are going to have to embrace neoliberalism. You're going to have to undergo what they referred to then as shock therapy. And that shock therapy, that neoliberal shock therapy, was what has turned, what, what turned Russia into an autocratic oligarchic state. Because neoliberalism always produces oligarchy. It has here in the United States. The Supreme Court embraced neoliberalism with the Citizens United ruling and the ones that preceded it. And poof, you know, we've got now billionaires running our politics and sponsoring our politicians. J.D. Vance, for example, he's got two billionaires who funded almost, you know, most of his campaign. Um, this is happening all over the country. Billionaires come here in Oregon. We've got uh, a Democrat running and, uh, and uh, you know, our, our former Tina Kotek, the former Speaker of the House, really good Democrat running against a, a wackadoodle Republican. And we've got two, two billionaires in this state who decided to get behind a former Democrat, Betsy Johnson, and, and throw a whole pile of money into her campaign. And so we've got, you know, it, 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 there's a very good chance we're going to end up with a Republican governor because she's going to split the vote because these billionaires are playing in politics. This is neoliberalism. This is what was imposed on the Soviet Union in a much more severe form through, through the so-called shock therapy in that period from 1992, uh, uh, really 1992 through 98, 99, you know, more or less. And, and uh, that's where it's at. So uh, my friend uh, uh, Lila Connors, uh, after uh, the Soviet Union fell, she went over there and she, she had connections to Gorbachev. She produced a movie called Arrow of Time in which she spent hours interviewing Gorbachev. And uh, that movie is on the Need to Know website. You can, you can uh, Google Need to Know Gorbachev, Connors, and uh, I'm sure it'll pop right up. And uh, it's an amazing documentary where Gorbachev just pours it out, just lays it out, you know, how he was trying to create a, a progressive, you know, paradise in Russia. And he would have done it if George Herbert Walker Bush had not sabotaged it and, 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 and basically coerced the IMF to go along with it. Because back in the 90s, neoliberalism was the new hot thing. So anyhow, you can read all about it in my new book, The Hidden History of Neoliberalism, How Reaganism Gutted America which will be uh, in bookstores in, what, I think a week and a half or thereabouts, shipping from, you know, all your online sources as well. And I'll be doing a, a book signing, in fact, with Powell's online. Uh, we'll be doing a Zoom on this. So uh, I'm, I'm guessing by then the, the whole Gorbachev thing will be no longer in the news. But uh, one other thing I wanted to share with you very quickly, <laughs> it's what is, how, how, wh how are people... How are the Trump hompers? How are the, you know, the, the, the right wingers? What are they hearing from their media? What are they thinking? Yesterday in the writing newsletter, the, t the top stories, the top 10 stories, the role of weed in America's decline, that was at Liberty Loft. The left moves to normalize pedophilia, that was on front page. By the way, Ron, Ron DeSantis is now attacking uh, Charlie Crist's running mate, who was the head of the teachers union, because there was a pedophile teacher down there and he's saying, oh, you know, she was helping protect. Not true. It's, it's a, you know, it's a false allegation. But, it, it, you know, as Mark Twain said, the, a lie can get all the way around the world before the truth gets its boots on. Um, so anyhow, that was number two. two. Number three, post-millennial counselor for sex offenders defends pedophiles as a marginalized minority. Uh, Washington Examiner, the left's gender-bending obsession is tiresome and absurd. absurd. Um, blue state conservative, Dr. Fauci is a mass murderer. I mean, this is the kind of wackadoodle stuff that was in there in the news yesterday on the hard right. Today, the writing newsletter, the, uh, the, the, the top headline is impeach and convict President Biden to save our political system. Dems use Nazi techniques to alter their history. Dems are lying and everyone knows it. 
Is the left preparing for civil war? That was over at town hall. Uh, DOJ releases supposedly damning photo in late night filing. Um, and the left's effort to reshape Arizona's election laws has failed. Um, oh, and New York Times continues its long history of covering for commies with Gorbachev obit. Right. Give me a break. Anyhow, that's, that's what's up in the news on the, on the right, on the hard right, on the far right, on the crazy right, whatever you want to call it. And uh, that's the true story, the actual story of Mikhail Gorbachev. And uh, he was a good guy. And he tried to, he really, had he succeeded, had he not been frustrated in his efforts by, by George Herbert Walker Bush, Russia w probably would have joined the European Union and would have been a good neighbor. And Putin never would have had power. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Brian in Booth Bay, Merrill, uh, Maine. Excuse me. Hey, Brian, what's up? Hello. I've got so much to talk about, so coming off when you have to. First point, uh, ERB, Epic Rap Battles of History, is a YouTube channel. They have a video with Gorbachev as one of their subjects. So if you want a good laugh, oh, really? check okay. out Ep Epic Rap Battles of History. Right. There's dozens, maybe hundreds of them. Anyway, um, the... the, the point I really wanted to make is uh, to call Biden and thank him. Call the White House and thank the White House for, for relieving people like me with, you know, $10,000 plus of student loan debt. Yeah, and the number, uh, by the way, the comment line for the White House is 202-456-1111. Yes, and it, it's critical that we give them our praise when they do the right thing, because I'm sure all they're getting is flack. Sure. Anyway, um, right. I, I also want to say that we should tax billionaires out of existence. I think billionaires are, you know, think about it, $999,999,999.99. 990, how, many, how many yachts can you buy with that amount of money? And a dollar more than that should be taxed out of existence. Yeah. And my final, my final point, if I may, I want to recommend a fantastic book called The China Study. It was published in 2006. Maybe you've talked about it already. Uh, the author is T. Colin Campbell. And it has very little to do with politics. It has to do with uh, food, nutrition, health, uh, cancer rates. A, a massive study that was done in the 70s, right after China um, opens their borders, more or less, and, you know, came out of isolationism. Uh, this guy, Campbell, Dr. Campbell, was one of the leaders of a massive health and nutrition study, and they were able to go in and, and document thousands of Chinese um, uh, laborers and workers in the cities and the rural, rural areas, and it gave us an amazing snapshot into the dietary and nutritional um, well-being of a fairly isolated uh, society, a culture, right. and the and consequences that has of allowed, that. Yeah. yeah, 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 and it has has allowed him, uh, Campbell, uh, to to compare that to the dietary, you know, supplements and and well being of people around the world. It's an absolutely phenomenal, uh, life changing book. It it <laughs> when my stepdad read it, I was already about eight or ten years into being a, a vegetarian. Uh, this was the book that showed that the lower the amount of uh, animal protein in your diet, the lower your cancer rate and, and heart disease rate, wasn't it? Not just cancer rate, but heart disease and, and every, every ailment that we suffer as a 
wealthy nation. He calls them uh, diseases of affluence. Right. Those are virtually non-existent in cultures that have a whole food plant-based diet. So yeah. that's that's the yeah. final point. Yeah, and they and the, and in and those cultures, I mean, they still eat you know meat and eggs and things like that, but they use them as condiments rather than as rather than as primary courses. So you know, right? It's a, it's it's a vanishingly small proportion of their daily intake. Right. Yes. Everyone it's like, should it's read like the, the flavoring in the soup. Yeah, I'm with you, Brian. I'm familiar with it. Thank you very much for the call, and uh, and thanks for watching us there on YouTube. Let's try John in um, in Phoenix. John, you're on the air. What's up? Hey, Tom. I got a couple quick questions for you. And by the way, thank you so much for educating us every day, Monday through Friday. I'll um, do my best. Thank you. You're, you're amazing. Hey, my question is, how come when you apply for jobs as a civilian, we have a background check? But when you're going to be the when you want to run for president of the United States, there's no background check at all. And if enough criminals vote for you, you win. I think that is a totally wrong system. Even the FBI law enforcement, you have to have a background check. So I was curious on the answer on that. My second thing I want to say real what? quick, and I'll take everything off the air. I'll listen to you. Um, I did call the January 6th committee, and I suggested to them that they do investigate Mark Zuckerberg because he obviously took profit over democracy by allowing Trump and his uh, terrorist friends to, you know, set everything up for January 6th. And then my very last thing is I spoke to you about it two months ago. I don't have Twitter, but I, I would love for you to get Glenn Kishner or however you say his last name, Glenn Kishner on your show. Uh, he's really been into digging into Donald Trump, and I think he'd be a great person for you to have on. Okay. Thank you, John. I'm trying to remember John's first point. Oh, uh, security clearances. Uh, <laughs> one of the reasons why I ask you to state a one question <laughs> The reason why we don't want to have the federal government or any anybody other than the voters and the media and a free, you know, and a presumably free press. The reason why we don't want to have the federal government vet our politicians, including people running for president, is because uh, government, like any other you know, human endeavor, any other agency, any other uh, process is corruptible. I mean, just think about it for a minute. If Donald Trump was president, and if he had stacked the commission, let's say that the, the Congress created a commission or an agency, or there was an agency within the FBI whose job was to vet people running for president, and Trump was president, and, and Joe Biden or Bernie Sanders came along, and I mean, would you, would you trust the FBI saying, you know, if they came out and said, oh, no, you, you know, Bernie Sanders, you know, for his wedding anniversary, they went to, to, to Russia, which is true, by the way. They, what, they, what they did was uh, Bernie was the mayor of Burlington, Vermont at the time, and they have a sister city in Russia. It's a little town in, in, in uh, uh, western Russia. And so Bernie and his new wife went, to, uh, went, went there for their anniversary. I mean, you know, it was like kind of a sweet thing that was also tied into his being mayor of Burlington, Vermont. But, uh, you know, if, if uh, Trump's agency that vets presidential candidates came out and said, oh, no, you can't have Bernie, he's a security risk, and here's our rationale, that's why it's up to the voters. The problem, you know, what happened in 2016, frankly, is, number one, I don't think anybody had realized, uh, I, I, many people had realized, but I, I, the impact of social media, the power of Facebook was so great and the cost to corrupt and exploit Facebook was so low that the Russians were able to use Facebook to basically make Donald Trump president. And throughout that process, Paul Manafort was sending internal campaign polling data to Russian intelligence during the 2016 election. He's now admitted this. And Russian intelligence then was using that information to buy on Facebook. You can buy, okay, I want people in this particular town, in this particular state. So, hey, we need to jack up the vote in, in Wisconsin, or we need to jack up the vote in, in, in uh, this town in Texas or whatever. And you can, you can micro-target like that. On, and it's not just Facebook. You can do it across the media, but most of their efforts were on Facebook at the time. So number one, that was not considered. And number two, and I think probably even more important, uh, because Facebook doesn't necessarily have an obligation to determine whether Donald Trump is a Russian 
agent or asset or not, although, frankly, I think they really dropped the ball in 2016. But, but number two, our media as a whole, I mean, Les Moonves really illustrated this hugely when he came out and said to a, a stockholders meeting, you know, Donald Trump may be terrible for America, but he's making millions of dollars for CBS. Keep it up, Donald. And it's like the remark I made earlier. Donald Trump is this generation's O.J. Simpson. You've got a high-profile star who's going through a crisis, and the media is all over it. Well, it was the same thing in 2016, although it wasn't a crisis. It was a presidential election. But you had a media star, and therefore the media was all over Donald Trump because he was a TV star. And, and NBC had you know, had him on the air for 14 years, and they had paid millions to, uh, you know, of media consultants to teach him how to do good television, and he was very good at it. And so, you know, they were looking at the dollars rather than at democracy. Hopefully that doesn't happen again, but I don't think the solution to that is to have our government vet our candidates. I think the solution to that is, is to, uh, it, frankly, is to have more competition in our media, to break up some of the giant media and have, you know, bring competition back, and, 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 ha and support more independent media in the United States. <laughs> like like this program, <laughs> selfless or shameless plug, uh, but that that's where I think we need to go. Michael in uh, Wheeling, Illinois. Hey, Michael, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. I just wanted to say I thought your piece the other day on how fundamentally unfair the Senate is was really eye-opening. Thank you. Um, yeah, yesterday's I, article. Yeah, what I wanted to ask you about is the filibuster in the Senate. Like a lot of people, I feel that that is, you know, fundamentally undemocratic. But I'm wondering if you have any concerns that eliminating the filibuster would allow a future Republican Party that controls the presidency, the Senate and the House to um, reduce or eliminate Social Security and Medicare benefits. I believe that's a possibility, Michael, and uh, it frankly does not concern me. And here's why. I, and, and this is why I think that when the Democrats say it's time to end the filibuster, I completely agree with them, although I realize not all of them are saying that, which is why we still have the filibuster. Um, and that is that I believe in democracy. I believe in the American people. And I don't think that we need to be protected from either political party uh, you know, by, by, uh, by the filibuster, frankly. I mean, you know, if the Republicans did take control of the House, the Senate, and the White House, there's a, and substantial control. There is a good chance that they would try to destroy Social Security. When the last time that they had control of all three branches was in 2005, in, in, uh, and George W. Bush was president, and they privatized Medicare. Half of Medicare now is, is privatized. Private policies, they call them Medicare Advantage, but they're not Medicare. They're private policies where you get screwed by these big insurance companies. And, and so, you know, your vision actually happened, or partly happened. And, uh, you know, the response to that is for the, for the American people to push back and say, no, we don't want those people in power anymore. And yes, we do want change. And now you've got Democrats working on, on legislation to say that these companies can no longer use the word Medicare and to, to dial back some of these programs, these so-called advantage programs. Um, so, uh, you know, it's, it's a risk I'm willing to take, Michael. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah, okay, good. I'm, I'm glad. I, thank you very much. Bob in Desert Hot Springs, California. Hey, Bob, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom. It's really good to have you back. I mean that. Thank you. It's nice to be back. I, I was driving Louise nuts. <laughs> I'm easily bored. <laughs> I really missed your show. But anyway, uh, the other day you were talking about education. And I remember back in the day in the early 70s when I went to college, community college for free, I took a course in business management. And I remember it said in there, for the betterment of business and society, health care and education should not be uh, for a profit and a loss. Uh, right. I agree. They should be part of the commons, just like fire and police. And Right. And I remember reading this in a business book. Mm-hmm. Well, this was conventional wisdom in the United States up until the 70s and 80s when, when neoliberalism crept in. I mean, you know, the, this idea that, that public, public goods should be done in a way that generates private profit was blasphemous. You know, Dwight Eisenhower would have been horrified by that idea. Even Richard Nixon was largely opposed to it. Right. I just wanted to bring that up, Tom. That's all. Yeah, well, you. you did it, and you did a great job of it. Thank you, Bob. Appreciate the call. Steve in New York City. Hey, Steve, what's on your mind today? 
Yeah, it drives me crazy. I'm at the Y. All these old guys that love Trump drive me nuts. Okay. Tell me about it. And uh, everybody goes, they say, oh, Trump kept us out of wars. They love Trump. And, uh, you know, and they has Trump is this. He's, he's a hero. They think he's like a some sort of Superman. So have you, is, is your frustration, wrestler. Steve, that they are, uh, you know, Trump humping? Or is your frustration that you have not figured out a way to... Uh, convince them otherwise or, or shut them up? Well, it seems like there's something in their brain it's like uh, blocking the wheels in their well, brain. it's from, tribalism. From accepting another, accepting you know. another thought or something. They can't, they can't be convinced. They think Trump's, you know, saved America or something. It's like sports teams. You know, people feel like their identity is wrapped up in, in their team, in their tribe, in their, in their, uh, their family, essentially. And so when you challenge the tribe, when you challenge the team, you, it, for, particularly for people who are deeply insecure, who don't have a strong sense of self, you're challenging their sense of self. You're, you're challenging their identity. You're challenging their very existence deep down inside. I mean, they wouldn't articulate it that way, but that, this is what's going on down inside their lower unconscious brain is, you know, when... Yeah, when, yeah, yeah but, but Trump, Trump actually was kind of good in a way, kind of like, Made certain kind of males like less educated males feel better about themselves. Yeah, like yeah, may exactly. They have like they may have like a good edu high level education. They felt better. Like one guy's a property manager guy, just like folk. They have a high level education. Felt and Jimmy felt oh, he loves he loves. Trump. But see, Joe Biden is Trump. reaching out to those people now too. He's 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 reaching out to blue collar workers and you know people who have a high school diploma or less, and saying you know we're here for you too. We want to raise the minimum wage. We want to increase work standards. We want to bring manufacturing back to the United States. Um, you know, he's doing, actually, the things that Trump said he was going to do and never did. Steve, thanks a lot for the call. It's, it's nice to hear from you. And, and uh, you know, I totally get it, how frustrating it is to talk to Trump humpers. That said, you know, I guess we have to have a little compassion. <laughs> we'll be right back. Stick around. Bill in Clifton, New Jersey. Hey, Bill, what's on your mind today? Yeah, hey, Tom. I wanted to address the question of uh, psychological profile of a president, someone who's running. And if I were president or I'm running for president, I would voluntarily take the Army psychological exam because I'm going to be the commander in chief. And I would start that as a precedent for others to follow. And I don't think Trump could have passed that test. That's interesting. Um, I'm completely unfamiliar with this. Can you tell me anything about to get into it? The, to get into the military, you have to, like, like to get into a police department, you have to pass a psychological test. Like the guy who shows up and says, I want to kill and, uh, you know, see blood run, whatever it is, he doesn't get in the Army. Mm -hmm. So they have that control. I also had a, a geeky question that I've been dying to ask. Go for it. Okay. Do you know the sequel? The first sequel to the first feature-length movie. I don't. It's called The Fall of a Nation. Is it a sequel to The Birth of a Nation? Exactly. There were oh, one no. or two short films before that. One was called The Little Train Robbery. But the sequel deals with the opposition to um, the uh, pacifism from uh, Ford and William Jennings Bryan. And it, it's, it's World 1916. War I? Yeah, huh? you're talking about the opposition to World War One. To getting into the war, 1916. Right. The plot is about the European Confederate Army invading the United States. Amazing. And starts by executing children and veterans, and then a millionaire collaborator accepts the title of Prince of the Puppet Government, and then uh. a pro-war congressman who raises an army to defeat the invaders with the support of Suffragette, who has an army of women who seduce men and kill soldiers. That's incredible. Anyway. Now, for people who don't know what you, you and I are talking about here, Bill, Birth of a Nation was the first um, nationwide theater release, big-scale movie. It was screened in the White House right. by President Woodrow Wilson, and it was a recruiting film for the Ku Klux Klan. 
and it was about what happened during Reconstruction when black people were elected to, uh, you know, public office down south, and it shows them, you know, with their feet up on the tables eating watermelon and stuff. And I mean, it's just so racist; it's just insane. But it was also right. a silent movie, um, and uh, was the sequel a silent movie as well? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, it was 1916. Yeah. I think it had a. There, I think there was a symphony, rate, you know, music background that was uh, written or something. But yeah. uh, I think it was a, a silent movie. But uh, it's an interesting, different set of uh, uh, ideas that were going fascinating on. stuff. I, I, you know, I had heard I'd, I'd heard about Birth of a Nation, uh, you know, mm -hmm. for much of my life. And I'd never actually seen it. And I don't know, maybe mm -hmm. ten years ago or so, it was uh, we were mm -hmm. living in Portland because I remember doing a show about this uh -huh. when we were at the old KPOJ studio. Um, Louise and I watched it. I don't recall where we found it, if it was on YouTube or, or what, but we watched this, you know, Birth of a Nation. And I was just like, like, my jaw was on the floor. I mean, this is so racist and this is so explicit and this is, this is a friggin' recruiting film for the Klan. And it wasn't being characterized as such. Instead, it was, it was just, you know, famous as being the first big movie. And it was, and it was like, M, you know, one of the Metro Goldwyn Mayor people or something. It was, I forget that uh -huh. it was a Daryl's. Who was the guy who who produced it? He was like, uh, it was Doug Griffith. Griffith, D. W. Griffith. Griffith. That's right. And right. you know, a huge major movie maker, and he went on to become a right. huge, you know, and a very very wealthy man. And uh, yeah. and but you watch that movie today, and it's like, holy mm -hmm. cow! What an insight into yeah. into into white racism in in nineteen right. whatever it was when that came out. You know, right. it was incredible. Uh, when I was in college, I earned credits by, I was in the film school by being a projectionist. I had to watch that film about 10 times. Oh, so you know what I'm talking I had about. To project it. <laughs> I get yeah. It. I get it. Bill, thanks for the yeah. call. It's great to hear sure. from you. Thank you. Danny in Santa Monica. Hey, Danny, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom, how you doing? I'm glad your back's better. Thank you. Yeah, it is considerably. I haven't uh, taken any pain, pain pills in a day and a half, so. Um, All right, buddy. Knock the wood. suspenders, uh, Larry King's uh, younger brother. Well, I think I'll be uh, able to put a belt on next week, I hope. <laughs> so. Okay, good, buddy. Hey, I have a question. Uh, I'm a bartender at a private club, and a lot of the people are complaining that they paid off their student loans, and they're, they, they're the parents that paid off the student loans. And I had an idea, and I just thought maybe you could tell me what you think. Say you make under 150000 a year, you would be eligible for whatever the amount that you borrowed for the length of time that you borrowed, a free interest, a uh, free loan from the government that you then can do with what you want for the same amount, a five-year, 15-year, uh, you know, whatever, 10 grand, whatever you might have borrowed. And then at the end of that, you either pay back the exact amount, then you can use that money to make money, or you then pay a low-interest rate loan because... I've seen commercials during sporting events where they're targeting people that, you know, they're mad and angry of people that, you know, are getting this quote-unquote free money, which I'm just thinking how can we try to make these people not so upset and offer them a reward for being good people who paid off their loans and they were, you know, honest and so obviously they're a good credit risk. I yeah. don't know. It's just throwing out an idea out there and I thought maybe you could show me any flies in the ointment and glad you're back, buddy. Thank you, Danny. No, I, I, I get your point. Uh, I, I would argue that um, your uh, rebuttal or solution or, or response to these folks is buying into their frame. The frame that they're coming out of with, with these kind of complaints is that a, a wrong was done by, by uh, paying off people's student loans. And because I paid my student loan, that wrong was done to me. And I would flip that upside down. And I would say the wrong was done to you, you're absolutely right, by the need for the student loan that you already paid off. You were the one who was screwed by Ronald Reagan. You know, good on you for paying back your loan. But, you know, prior to Ronald Reagan, college in the United States was functionally free. I mean, and and, most and, of these guys probably did pay very little uh, or, you know, small amounts. Exactly. And so, it's so, hard so, to, uh, so I was. Them to change. Yeah, no, I get that. But, but so my point would be that, that paying off student loans is righting a wrong. And that you were the you were a victim of that wrong as well, and and now you know there's not a way to compensate you for that, unfortunately. And um, but you know you are you were the victim of Reagan. These people with student loans are the victims of Reaganomics or Reaganism, and uh, you know we're starting to make it right. 
And this so, is this like, is the starting point. One of the guys I bartend is a teacher for 15 years. He still has to work two nights a week. He's paying them off. And he makes okay money here in California, you know, but ultimately, you know, I feel like he could maybe get some interest-free loan that, I don't know, I just feel like that these people could... I think we need to zero out all student debt across yeah, well, the nation. I mean, it's, it's, only two, it's only one and a half trillion dollars. That is less than Donald Trump's <laughs> tax cut for billionaires. If Thank Donald you. Trump can give a trillion and a half dollar tax cut to billionaires, we can do a trillion and a half dollars in debt forgiveness and it'll be just fine. The country did not collapse when Donald Trump gave all that money to billionaires. Um, you know, it won't collapse if we zero out student loans. And then we need to go back prior to Reagan, 80% of the cost of tuition was paid for, or the cost of, of a college, of, of going to college, 80% of that cost was paid by state and federal governments, and 20% was paid by tuition. Today, the numbers are the exact opposite. Today, 80% of the cost of college is paid for with tuition, and 20% is subsidized by state and federal grants. We need to go back to that 80-20. We need to reverse back to the 80-20 we had pre-Reagan. And, and make college affordable again and, 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 and do it as soon as possible. Danny, I got to move along, but thank you for the call. Let's welcome back John in Valley Springs. Hey, John, what's on your mind today? Hey, how's it going, Tom? Good, what's up? I, I got a couple of things. One, Pick one, one you got to laugh out of this. Where's all these women that uh, Donald Trump said was getting raped that coming across the border? That was when he was running for office. And the other one was um, Mexico has extremely large oil reserves underground. Right. And I really think we ought to look into uh, maybe working with our neighbor country down there and see what we can set up to try to get away from Saudi Arabia. I think that would help us a lot. And yeah, they would, the have to, they, they the would have to do it. I think the transition moving to electrical power is great. Yeah, I agree. They would have to do a lot of, uh, of development of their oil down there. Pemex is, uh, has historically been, a, which is the Mexican oil company, has a histor and, and it's gone on and off again. And I'm, I'm frankly not sure of its status now, but it's been private, then it's been public, then it's been private, then it's been public. Um, and, but, uh, I, you know, the, the place where there's a pile of oil that's easily accessible and there is the infrastructure to pump it out right now wouldn't require much of an investment is in Venezuela. And frankly, yep. I think if we were to drop our embargoes on Venezuela and, and embrace that country, um, there's a good chance that we could, uh, we could bring them into the family of nations, as it were. Uh, you know, yeah, this, this I, I right think wing. a little heavier uh, investment into talking with those people would be wonderful. Yeah, I'm with you. I think the, uh, the, the right-wing policies have not been good for this country or Venezuela. Mary Ellen in Chicago. Hey, Mary Ellen, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom. I just wanted to call really quick to say that um, I wanted to correct a piece of misinformation because I didn't want your listeners to walk away with this. I was a real food activist and, and GMO-free activist for years. And one of your previous callers, I'm glad that artificial sweeteners are on your radar and antidepressants, and there's a huge connection between the two. But anyway, um, the artificial sweeteners, one of your previous callers said he had this, you know, bad experience with one, and he thought it was stevia his mother was, you know, cooking or baking with. Mm -hmm. And I just want to correct that. Stevia is the only natural, it's the, it's not, maybe not the only, but it's the major natural um, sugar alternatives. Yeah, it's a plant extract. May have been you're, you're absolutely right yeah, about that, exactly. Mary Ellen. But, but last week, I did a geeky science here where I, I shared a, um, a, a set, actually, several peer-reviewed scientific studies that were looking at uh, four artificial sweeteners, and stevia was one of those four. Asper excuse me, aspartame, stevia, and I'm forgetting the names of the other two, uh, but they were all ones that you'd be familiar with. And while stevia didn't produce uh, some of the consequences, and I'm not... Pardon me. <clears throat> One of the uh, two of them were producing changes in blood sugar metabolism and changes in gut bacteria, and two of them were just producing changes in gut bacteria. And stevia was one of the least, one of the less destructive ones, but stevia was also, and I don't forget which, I, I forget which of the changes it was producing, but stevia was also working in a way that was not good for people. 
as much as I, well, thank I, you for I, educating I, me I on that, you, Stevia, but I just but wanted to correct. It it's not, yeah, it's not, it's not artificial, artificial, but yeah, it may not be, it may not be. Um, thank you for educating me on that. I do want to throw in, as long as I got you, that the connection, though, that with aspartame, if you look at the history, it, it's, you know, insane. It was originally under G.D. Searle in Chicago, didn't, did not get passed because of cancer-causing agents. And when Donald Rumsfeld took over That's that company right. and... So you know the history. Yeah, Rumsfeld was the guy who pushed that through. Yes, exactly. And he got rich doing it. Yeah, exactly. And they, you know, as soon as Reagan, you know, was inaugurated. So, um, and then the connection when they were, when they were putting that into the food supply, because it does aspartame, it, it aggravates the glutamate receptors in the brain. And what soothes that as a Band-Aid are Prozac in that class. Sadly, sadly. Mary Ellen, I got to run, but thank you for the call. Um, And thank you for being with us today. Uh, Don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires every single one of us. We are the demos in democracy, the people. And if we don't act, we don't have a democracy. So double check your voter registration, especially if you live in a red state. But even in blue states, Republicans can challenge your voter registration. It can get pulled and you don't even know it. Double check it. Get out there. Get active. Tag. You're it. Have a great afternoon. Be good to yourself and the people around you. Stay safe. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 